Beyond the Fence Line is brought to you by the Texas Agricultural Land Trust, dedicated to conserving the Texas heritage of agricultural lands, wildlife habitats, and natural resources. Find out more at txaglandtrust.org. Well, welcome to Beyond the Fence Line, episode 11. Uh, we're going to have a really great discussion. We have a great uh, guest with us, one of the sweetest people I know, and uh, it's my pleasure to introduce Dr. Lakeisha Odom uh, to Beyond the Fence Line. Welcome, Lakeisha. Thank you so much for having me. And, uh, you know, today we're really going to be discussing the work of the Foundation for Food Agriculture Research. And I want to, you know, dive in a little bit, you know, into more discussion of, you know, what you do at FAR, but also built upon our last episode uh, 10 with Jeff Goodwin on soil resilience. And, and, and here, Lakeisha, what you're doing at uh, FAR on, um, you know, soil health and, and soil resiliency and uh, how all this interconnectivity of all the work you're doing, uh, I think is gonna really uh, entice and, and, and inform our listeners. So. Lakeisha, again, I can't thank you enough. Um, again, you're 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 one of the most special people that I know and have met, and been a true blessing to get to work with you, and uh, maybe work for you a little bit on the advisory board, on your advisory board at FAR, and and uh, it's definitely been a blessing. So maybe we kind of dive in, and and Lakeisha, if you can kind of share the. Foundation for Food Ag Research's mission and, and, and work with us. Absolutely. Happy to share and thank you so much. It's been such a blessing and a learning opportunity and an opportunity for growth to get to know you as well, Chad, and be inspired by all the work that you do in soil health and uh, productivity and resilience. So I think this is a great time to just have this type of conversation. So for those um, folks that might be on the line that are a little bit less familiar with our organization, the Foundation for Food and Agriculture Research was created in 2014. And the, the objective was that there's a lot of work that happens in the private sector. Public funding in agriculture has been pretty stagnant for the last decade, if not more. But there's a lot of work happening in the private sector because companies and other NGOs, have they have to also figure out some of these challenges when it comes to resilience, increasing productivity of their farms, of their ranches. And, and so there's an opportunity that exists to create what we're call, we call public-private partnerships. So FAR was provided with initial funding in the 2014 Farm Bill and the 2018 Farm Bill to be the public part of a public-private partnership. So a lot of what we do is look for other organizations that are non-federal and look for opportunities to increase funding in um, ag research. So we do that across six specific areas we call our challenge areas. And those areas could range from urban farms to next generation crops. So looking at ways in which we can make our crops more resilient, looking at um, sustainable water management, advanced animal systems, um, and then of course, soil health, which is why I'm here. I've managed the soil health portfolio. And that's how I got the chance to meet Chad initially is that um, a lot of great work that he's done in the space and he's a great thought leader. 
and he joined our advisory council to help us to identify those areas in which we should um, prioritize. So that's a little bit about what I do as a scientific program director is I look for those opportunities to partner, um, to add additional funds, to look for what are the research gaps that exist? What are those things that need additional research funds in order to basically lift all ships? I think it's a great position because I get to understand what a lot of different organizations are making important and then figure out ways to support that work and through research, um, through piloting of different projects, but it's mainly research. So we, we do consider economics and social science as, as research as well. So it's a wide range of things that we could work on. So we could look at uh, understanding, you know, why a certain farmer might adopt a specific type of cover crop, for example. And then we could really do some detailed projects around, you know, AI and precision agriculture and how we can use um, complex data algorithms to predict modeling or things like that. So it's a wide range of things that we can consider under that umbrella of research. But for me as a director, the main goal is what's needed in the space, by the farmer, the rancher, the researcher, and what can we do to support that work? So it's a really great uh, opportunity for me to continually understand what's the most innovative or exciting research and couple that with what's the most practical, right? So I, I think one of the things I love about FAR is we think about tactical solutions. So we we know that you could research anything, but we're really looking at what are those solutions we can come up with that can be put into the hands of farmers and ranchers directly. I think other challenge areas are maybe a little less tactical. That makes sense. If you're looking at crops, you may not be able to genetically you know, improve a, a particular type of crop in a short amount of time. But in the soil health space, we can test out almost immediately different strategies for adopting types of practices. So I think at least in my challenge area, tactical is what we are. We really are looking for those solutions we can get into the hands of farmers and ranchers as quickly as possible to get that learning on the ground and get those, um, those results, you know, started as quickly as possible. Uh, did I cover everything? Yeah, I mean, I think that's excellent, <laughs> Lakeisha. And I think that's the thing I appreciate about FAR and yourself, um, you know, being a rancher and a producer myself. Um, you know, it gets a little frustrating, I think, at times, right, when we think about research and finding solutions and finding tactics to, you know, help us be better. And, you know, with us being better, it kind of, you know, is, is the tagline to our podcast is beyond fence line, right? It, 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 it's going to benefit society as, as a whole. And so I appreciate the tactics and the way you address of what I would call usable science, right? Of bringing the end user from the beginning. And I think when you look at it from your advisory council of having producers, um, you know, like myself and Michael Vance and others on that of really making sure um, that, that you're hearing our voice and finding solutions for us that are practical. And I think you you highlighted that very well. A lot of times good ideas, you know, sound good in, in a uh, uh, in an office building or in a room with other smart people, but when it gets down to actually implementation on the ground, you know, on our ranch or farm, um, a lot of times it, it's just not practical. And I appreciate, you know, your guys work. You know, Lakeisha, one of the words that, that I hear yourself and 
Dr. Rocky, you know, talk about is the word audacious, right? It's, it's not usually a word connected uh, like to science. So what does this mean and how can you really give us some examples of the type of research being done by far? That's a great question. So just for your listeners, uh, Dr. Rocky is Dr. Sally Rocky. She's our executive director and our bold leader. And one of the things that she always encourages us to do is be audacious. And so what that means for us, at least the way I've internalized that, is, is a it's really willing to take bolder risks. And in research that can sometimes be quite hard, right? Because research projects generally last three, four, five years. And so then how do you kind of maintain that audacity? How do you look for those bold risks? So part of that is looking at the types of projects that we fund. So what you'll notice is we can fund a wide range of things we can fund the traditional research projects, we can also fund things like challenges where you have a very specific problem and you bring in groups to help solve that specific problem in a short amount of time or a prize where, you know, we may not know the solution, but we invite a lot of uh, organizations and entities to come in and, and try to propose a solution and the best solution quote unquote wins. So there's a lot of different ways that we can work together. And I think that's the way that for me, a lot of our audacity shows up in the ways that we seek to partner, um, the ways that we look for research gaps and the ways that we can fund, right? We have a multitude of tools that we can use to try to engage with non-federal partners. And I feel like one of the things that's most audacious to me, which shouldn't be, but it is, is finding ways to work together. Like, having farmers and ranchers at the table when you begin a project shouldn't be audacious, but it is. It's typically not the way in which some science has been done. I think there are lots of great groups that really embody this farmer rancher first philosophy, but it doesn't happen as often as it could and should. So one of the things I'm really proud of is it isn't necessarily that FAR has all the answers, but that there are amazing groups like the ones that you've been involved in uh, Chad, not just with your work here, but ac across your career that you've helped to introduce FAR to that really help us to ensure that we're having conversations with people and asking them, what do you need before we go out and fund some research? So I think one of the things that I found most audacious about us is is the, the types of projects that we fund, but the ways that we wanna engage people with us before we start the work and how we wanna ensure that those voices are at the table while we're doing the work. So it isn't like, we'll only talk to producers when we've got the thing that we want them to now do. No, we want them involved before we ever start work. One of the best, um, convenings Chad helped me put together was when he was still with Noble and looking at how we could get farmers in the room with uh, researchers and practitioners and federal folks to really talk about what are these challenges and I think Jeff might have alluded to some of that um, he was in that meeting as well your speaker last week and talking about like when you're thinking about soil health resilience and range and pastureland what are those gaps what are what's needed what do ranchers need to more effectively manage their resources and it you can't do a cookie cutter transition from cropland it's totally different so how do you adjust and make sure that there are 
practical, useful recommendations for ranchers to manage their soil so they can be resilient and productive and their soils can be resilient and productive. So I think when I think about the audaciousness of our organization and the types of work I'm most excited by, there are projects that either in and of themselves, they are too complex to fit into one box. And so they have multiple partners and they are big and unwieldy almost, but that's the complex nature of the type of work we're trying to solve, right? You can't have one simple project. It has to be kind of systems level approaches. So that's one way I think we're audacious is the types of projects and the ways we like to work with folks. Yeah, I think you're you're spot on, Lakeisha. And I think one of the things that makes it frustrating, right, from a producer perspective is, you know, that traditional science method, like you mentioned, is that they get everything right. It takes, you know, it's three to five years of research, and then it's another year or two to get published. And then the information, you know, finally reaches, um, you know, the folks on the ground. And by then it's too late. And, um, and so I think, you know, I, I think your guys' approach and this um, audacious, you know, mentality is 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 wonderful. One, you're taking on risk and challenges, and and taking on trying to really find the solution for us as producers, uh, where other people talk about it, and and it's just like you said, it's unwielding and it's just too hard. Where I think your methodology of bringing in the producers from the beginning taking off bite sizes and your collaboration and partnerships are, are, the, are the way to do it. And it's, uh, it, it's, it's been fun to be part of it kind of on some of the projects as well as afar, um, you know, and watching and, and seeing this information come forward. So with that, uh, I guess the, the big question I have for you, Lakeisha, I mean, do you have any examples of you know, even some of this findings and, and some of it's early on um, that has really helped impact the producer of maybe changing practices on the ground or anything of that, any kind of examples that you may have of some of those wins. I think, yeah, I have a couple of things that are really interesting to share. So one of the things that we worked on with, um, one of the first projects we worked on with you, Chad, or uh, the well, with your organization was cover crop germplasm. So, so in looking for different varieties of cover crops that could be used in different regions, because the reality is that currently, if you get cover crops, you just get a mix of seed and you don't necessarily know if that mix of seed is optimal for where you are, your soil type, your everything, right? You just get a mix and you don't know what you have in it. So one of the projects that was really exciting to me to work with um, Noble Research Institute is to really, provide more site-specific recommendations so that at the end of the day, folks will know if I'm in, um, you know, uh, Ohio, or if I'm in Alabama, I can use this mix of cover crop seeds. Those are optimal for me. So a lot of times, I think it's not a fault of agriculture. I think it's just the reality of trying to you know, manage a lot of a lot of uh, land in a, and you've only got so many studies, what you end up with is making projections for what might be optimal, but you don't really know. So I like those projects that really allow us to make those site-specific 
recommendations because I think that also helps producers to get a better sense of what's going to make them most effective because if you're using the same seed mix and you're in Texas and I'm in another state and I'm using it one of us is going to be more successful and we will have done the same thing right and so there's also a frustration I could understand from the producer of well I did everything you told me to do and it didn't it didn't turn out like this other person's, but they may have a different soil type. They may have different irrigation. They may have access to so many different things that might affect their ability to be to utilize that seed in the way that you can't. That's no one's fault. That's just a reality. So projects that allow us to provide more specific regional recommendations, I really appreciate. So that's one project. And then like thinking through, uh, there's another project we funded through uh, looking at um, cover crops and, and seeing if they can have impact, for example, on a potato industry. And one of the one of the high level results of that project, because I just read this report about last week, that's why it's in the front of my mind, is thinking about um, the ability to impact, I think they said about 160 million um, farm gate value in one particular state, because if they can manage to apply these cover crops in such a way that it's useful to the farmer, that could end up being $160 million farm gate potential. And then it also increases the potato yield potential. And then another project that came to mind, I think um, Chad knows this one. It's maybe a little controversial, but I'll throw it out there. Um, we funded some work with McDonald's on adaptive multi-padded grazing. And I know that the, we're not advocating any type of grazing, but some of the struggle is that everything's anecdotal in some of these methodologies, right? So people will say, oh, I used it and it was great, but there's no record of how effective and why it worked. So some of the research we've done is just to understand for those folks that say, oh yeah, my, you know, my soil microbes increased and my organic matter increased to get a, a real sense of, of what the mechanisms are behind that. So it's not that we're saying everyone has to use this grazing technique, but if you choose to, trying to put a bit more of a consistent kind of, um, science-based, evidence-based, you know, frame around it. So it doesn't feel so anecdotal because I know Chad has this. You'll have people that'll say, oh, I tried this and this and this and it worked great, but could you reproduce it, right? That's the struggle. If we ever want to get to scale, we've got to be able to give people like some sort of kind of consistent toolkit on how to do it. And so when things are so anecdotal, I find it's really hard to do. So then how do you consistently get the same result? You need to have regional specific recommendations. You need to have some kind of evidence-based, you know, record of what are those markers? How do you know your soil is healthy? How do you know your organic matter is increasing? What can you do if the thing you think you should do isn't working? There should be some other tools. And, and we tie into all the existing sources, right? USDA is an amazing resource for this. So are all these other amazing groups that are working. The thing I was talking to Chad before we got on the podcast around was FAR doesn't pr pr propose to have like propone hmm, words. FAR doesn't believe we have all the answers. We believe we can find people that want to work with us to find the answers. So it isn't so much that we feel like what USDA is doing or this group or this isn't enough. It's what else can we do to kind of really accelerate and support that amazing wealth of knowledge 
but there are some holes, right? There are some spaces where if everyone had figured out everything, we would, everyone would have what they needed. So where are those spaces that exist where additional support could help maybe move that learning a little bit farther? So there are projects that we think about that, that we're really proud of that have some hands-on experience and, and benefits. And those are always the ones for me that kind of lend themselves to site recommendations or guides or additional information on how you could do a new thing or adapt a new practice. Uh, thanks, Lakeisha. I mean, one thing that I appreciate about you is your excitement, right? You're, you're like a, you know, a lightning rod, which I love, right? It's you energize people and I'm excited now, you know, and thinking about, I mean, some of that, those examples of the amount of money you were talking about, that's from a producer perspective, that's being in the black instead of the red, right? And, and that impact is, is pretty awesome. And you've heard me say this many, many times, and I think you kind of take it and you've talked about it, you know, talking a little bit about this uh, kind of amp grazing kind of research with McDonald's, right? Is that, um, you know, we don't deal with ecological issues by practices, but by principles, which is a systems approach, right? A holistic approach of everything. And that's why a lot of times we try to, you know, management and ecology and how everything works is it's very messy. It's, it's not very, you know, uh, it can't be put into a, a petri dish in a sense, right? From a science perspective, and it's there's a lot of moving parts. And uh, I appreciate again how how you guys are tackling these big issues and helping try to find solutions and make a difference for us. You know, you go ahead. Yeah, I was gonna say the thing that also like I've grown into understanding in this position is um, one that that it's never our job to tell anyone that's out there doing the work how they should do it. Right. It's my job, I believe, to just create science-based, evidence-based um, solutions that will empower farmers and ranchers to pick what makes the most sense for them. Like we are completely agnostic about whether or not folks adopted this type of practice or that, if they're conventional, if they're organic, that's not our concern, right? The farmer or ranchers made the decision that makes the most sense for them. But if there are things, there are tools we can create through our research, if there are um, uh, best management practices or anything we can pass on through research that can just make that razor thin margin a little less razor thin that's what we're in the business of right i believe you know it's it's this space where sometimes people can get very prescriptive um scientists you know we we believe we have answers and we believe that um we know things but oh chat what was that you invited me to a grazing uh conference in las vegas a few years yeah. ago yeah. And yeah. i am Still, when I tell you, when I when I think about producer as citizen scientist, that's when it really hit me how amazing, you know, producers are at figuring out their own problem. Like they just, I still remember sitting in some of these sessions and being so in awe of just the complex solutions that ranchers had come up with to deal with things. Like I still remember this woman's session, she had um, 
her goats were sick. And she had created this, uh, this way where she figured out different things she could feed the goats to not only deal with their, their intestinal issues, but then it ended up where she created a butterfly refuge and she had wild, like it was this amazing, I was in awe of that, right? And that was just a weekend of amazing, you know, results where this space where I'm like, these people are figuring out their own problems. What I hope to do is take those learnings and just make it applicable to wider groups of people, right? Understand why it worked and then explain maybe if you in another state want to try to do something like this, here's some recommendations. But but it was just, you know, such an honor to be in the presence of folks that so committed and their commitment to being, you know, making sure that their land is protected was so evident. And then the, in, the insightfulness and the excitement, like the excitement around dung beetles coming back. Like, I just remember there were just so many instances where I was like, this is just amazing to see how much science maybe they're doing without even thinking about the fact that they're doing science, but they are like, they're figuring out complex problems and providing their own practical solutions and creating all these side benefits like I just that was one of those moments where you just you remember it forever and it changes the way that you move as a scientist at least I think so yeah I mean I think you know you're referencing back to the National Grazing Land Coalition's uh, mm -hmm. kind of National Grazing Land Conference that they have every three years and the next one uh, Lakeisha is this coming December um, December 6th through the 9th, I believe. And um, as you said, and I'm, you know, very, very biased, but I, I, I think that conference by far from a producer perspective is the best conference, right? It's 80% of the talks are producers themselves telling their story and sharing their story, the good and the bad, right? Of trying to, you know, a lot of times we won't we only want to discuss the good things of what has happened and we don't discuss the bad, but, you know, we can actually learn a lot more from those mistakes or and having conversations. But I think the most important thing, it's about sharing that story and those experiences and getting, um, you know, those results out. And I guess my question back to you is, you know, how does FAR share your, you know, results, these science-based information back to producers? Mm -hmm. So for every project that we fund, um, it'll follow. So most research projects will have like a dissemination plan. How are you going to get the information out? And typically what you'll see is we're going to publish some papers and some peer review journals and nothing's wrong with that. But I do think that FAR also pushes innovation and audaciousness in those spaces. So what we often are more excited by when we're looking at proposals is are they going to have field days? Are they going to have workshops, farmer-only workshops? Um, how are they going to engage with um, organizations that represent farmers and ranchers? And how are they going to have them integral throughout the process? So things I've seen that I really like in projects is some programs or projects will form a advisory council and they want to ensure they have rancher representation producer representation so that every component of the project has that that eye to it and then there's also you know the standard things like um, putting out field days having opportunities to kind of bring um, folks in and, and share that learning presenting at conferences like you mentioned um, but I always think there's more opportunity for that and what I recognize is there's still more opportunity for us to do a better job 
of having more farmers and ranchers. Like, yes, we have them on the advisory council, but is the mix strong enough, right? Is it is it a is it one one producer that has to speak for all producers, or do we need to have a larger presence? And I agree that we do. There's um, opportunities to ensure. I always try to ensure if a project that I will fund or, or support to be funded through our organization, if they're going to do anything that has impact in farmers and ranchers, they have to have a group that represents those views as a part of that, not only at the end, but during the planning, because you do have to have this like working together mentality. It shouldn't be that old model of, you know, scientists off in the corner coming down from the mountain with the solution when we never asked what was, what was the thing that you need the most. And I just am a person that believes you go to people, you ask them what they need and they tell you, and then you go and work on that. You don't tell them what their problem is. And then now you have the solution without ever asking them what's reasonable, what's feasible, what, what makes sense to you? What can you actually do? One of the things I remember Chad and I were at a meeting with farmers and ranchers talking about soil health or ranchers and pasture managers talking about soil health. And one of the things they said is we would implement all this great stuff, but I'm a two-person team. Right. So, So the reality is we could come up with the best best management practices in the world that doesn't solve the issue of what's needed is maybe some hands on tech assistance or someone to come out and actually do the work. So what's the real problem in that situation, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, that's definitely the missing link. And I think we overlook a lot, right, is is, uh, that side of the equation for sure. You know what, I mean, do you take those same tactics, Lakeisha, when you, you know, we think about policymakers of taking this information, it's important, you know, for them to understand your findings and, and, uh, you know, a lot of times, you know, from a producer perspective, right, we overlook of even having those communications or, or dialogue with policymakers. We just, you know, it's, it's, we have our blinders on. And, and as I, as you mentioned, we have a two man team at home and it's all, you know, uh, everyone on deck to try to get things done. And, you know, we need to do a better job of telling our story beyond just ourselves, but, you know, to the other 98% um, of the community. So, what are some of y'all's ways of that communication to policy? So I would say that the way that FAR was created in the legislation where they even, you know, uh, decided that there would be an organization called FAR, one of the things we can't do is we can't lobby. So right. the way that we work with policymakers is a little bit, we're able to fund research that informs policy. We do not do any policy work. But what we do is we share information and findings. So we do have um, a legislative team that will do things like, for example, very often, and Chad, I know you've done these before, Hill, Hill staff might need a briefing to understand an issue. That's where we may come in. Mm-hmm. They may want to understand why is soil health important? Like, I think I'm doing a Hill briefing on Thursday around soil health and the microbiome. So why is it important to involve uh, or support research that looks at all the microbes and bacteria in the soil? What does that help us to figure out? So those are a lot of spaces where I think FAR will show up, not necessarily providing like recommendations, but more helping um 
folks on the Hill to really nail down what the issue might be or get more information around why something is a priority or important from a scientific perspective. And so typically in those types of briefings, I, I would be asked things like, you know, why is this important? Why is FAR prioritizing, you know, soil health, for example? Um, how do we feel like that could make um, producers more productive if we invest in soil health? So those are the types of conversations that I would typically have, but not necessarily that we say, we believe the policy recommendation should be this, that, or the third. But our partner organizations, for example, can do that. So as I mentioned, we funded a project with the AMP grades with McDonald's. If McDonald's chooses to go on the Hill and they can navigate in that political space in a way that we don't, but we can provide the background information that maybe they, the research that they might cite in that conversation, we can help provide that type of thing. Great, thanks for sharing that. And um, You know, one of the things, one of kind of the first things when I've got here to TALT was we started kind of um, wrapping up a policy paper around, you know, resilient landscapes or soil resiliency. You know, from your perspective, Lakeisha, you know, what does that term mean? So at its core, I think resilience for me is just the ability to recover, that flexibility when a challenge, when a shock to the system, when a weather event happens, when something happens that we cannot control, just that there's an ability to recover. Soil resilience, though, is sometimes a complicated term because people can be very specific in how they define it. I don't. Again, I'm quite I'm quite agnostic about how we define soil resilience as well. For me, as long as the practices under that umbrella of soil resilience uh, allow the soil to adapt and rebound, I'm good. Like I feel like I won't won't have a lot of debate around. Well, is this practice in? Is this practice out? Isn't right. that really sustainability? Isn't that really none of that? maybe it should matter more, but it, it doesn't for me. I'm very uh, practical. I am by nature, you know, I'm from Alabama um, and my great granddaddy and my granddaddy were farmers. There's a part of me that's just practical. And so there's a space where I always ask myself, would my granddaddy care about this? You know, like, would he care what we call it or would he just want us <laughs> to tell him what to do? And, and so I think about him all of the time because I, I use a lot of my lens through the way that my granddaddy or my uncles would respond to something. And then I go, okay, well, I don't think they would get hung up on what you call it. They would just want to know if it works. So, okay. And, and that's really, you know, so much of who I am, I think is rooted in a lot of that practicality and thinking about, you know, what will be useful to people that, you know, are just, this is their livelihood and, they don't care about some of the things that we get spun up about. Not that it's not important, but is it is it as important as we sometimes feel it is? And I don't know that it is. Yeah, you know? no, I mean, that's, that's the thing when I, you know, you're bringing science-based information to help folks make decisions. And, uh, yeah. and, it, and the thing is, is you're at least thinking through that aspect of the, you know, is it practical? And, um, you know, I think that's, that's the beauty of your work and FAR's work is really bringing that usable science. And, um, you know, 
I like yeah. that term usable science. I'm gonna steal it from you. Start you. Yeah. I'll credit you the first three times. After that, I'm like, <laughs> <laughs> you can own it, own it, own it. And, but, uh, but the other thing I do like about soil resilience, in a way that some other terms haven't captured this, and I'd love to see how you respond, is is that it implies that there's an ability for improvement, right? So some of the terms that folks have used over time. They didn't feel like there was an ability to kind of improve, like sustainability is nothing wrong with the term, but it doesn't make me think of the ability to replenish or build back anything. And where resilience maybe makes me feel like there's not just keeping your soil health or maintaining it, but also this potential to add back. And there's something about that potential to add back that really connects with me. And so that's why I like the term a little bit better than some of the other terms. But I recognize that in reality, if you look at the types of practices that are under one header versus another, they're pretty similar. Right. Yeah. I mean, I'm I'm like you. I mean, well, you know, in some cases, words matter. I think in some of these cases, I think it just depends on the audience and there's different and, you know, maybe good or bad. I sort of understand where they're coming and what you know, terminology they utilize. But I think, you know, from a, you know, I put my, my producer hat on, right? I mean, you know, I'm waking each up, waking up each and every day trying, you know, to be better tomorrow than I am today, mm-hmm. right? And in and, and, and so many ways, right? From a, from being a father, um, you know, a husband, right? Uh, Christian, everything, right? Everything I do, that's, that's the lens I'm looking at. And it's important for me from a, you know, on the land perspective, it's even that much more important for, for many, many reasons, Lakeisha. And one, it's, it, you know, I have to be better and, and I have to be, you know, more of this regenerative ag and, and like you're saying, building, you know, getting better, not staying constant because I have to make a living, right? I, I mean, um, there's more times than not we're in the red or on the verge, right? That the the margins are so slim, we have to be on our on our toes at all times. And so if I can build resiliency in my landscape, that gives me more flexibility, uh, more assurance um, to be able to handle those those shifting climate uh, events, right? Of being floods or, or extreme droughts. And, and, you know, we know those are happening. We're seeing those and, um, you know, how do we prepare and bring information and science base that you're bringing to us to help add into that toolbox of another decision-making uh, process. So I, I, I totally really appreciate, you know, that, that aspect. Well, two things that came on my heart when you were saying, uh-huh. two things that kind of came on my heart when, when you said your last segment was, words do matter, but actions matter more, right? Mm-hmm. So some of it is, yes, we want to make sure we're using the right terms, but at the end of the day, if that doesn't lead to action, have we really gotten where we need to go? And the other thing you said was you're trying to make a living, but you're also trying to leave a legacy. I know you, you are, right? Yeah, yeah. no doubt. How can we, the resilience helps that part, right? Because you want to make sure that the land that you leave your kids is is in a good space and it's in and that those challenges maybe that you've experienced you come up with some solutions so that the next generation that is moving and stepping in the 
those shoes and, and stepping into those being those leaders that you know they're going to be that they have everything they can be to do that successfully and I think resilience and, and regenerative give me that too like there's a legacy element in it it makes me feel like that that the things we're trying to do are really to help bring life back a little bit take it out but also put replenish and there's something about that that um makes me feel like we're moving in the right direction even if the terms sometimes don't always line up perfectly I think the intent does yeah you you said it very very well I and and uh yeah, you're exactly, exactly correct, right? I mean, that's the reason I'm here at TALT, right, is from those aspects of how can I help other families like myself um, to be better and be able to provide that legacy back, you know, to, to the next generation. And it's so important, um, everything. So uh, very well said. You know, I think, Lakeisha, when we, when we kind of think about this, you know, maybe you could share a little bit of some of the projects, specific projects that, you know, are working towards this soil resilience, you know, mm -hmm. concept or, or terminology we're looking at. So I would say there are a couple of projects that, you know, either they're funded now or we're in conversation with and thinking through how we can work on them. And one of them, I think ties back to your guest last week and Jeff's a great friend that I got through Chad. Um, but in looking at um, what are those soil health needs for folks working on grazing lands? We've done a lot of research in what can happen in crop plants in, in range. It's a bit more challenging. The systems are um, different and they're not managed quite the same way. And so there's a huge gap there in giving like practical hands-on supportive guidance to folks managing their grazing lands. And I know you've been in this space for years and been a leader in this space for years, but thinking what are the things that FAR could come in and maybe help partner to support some research to answer some of these questions that are just challenging and complex and all the things I love about the projects that we fund, but they're hard. They're, they're harder to design a project because it's not just one answer. You do have to, as you said, Chad, look at that systems level approach. So so we've had conversations with, you know, groups in the space around what we could do and what would be supportive. And so I'm excited to see in the next few months where those conversations land and what we can actually support. And then another project that I'm pretty excited by is um, our Ag Climate Partnership work. So when I started FAR, we, we just weren't quite sure where we wanted to land with uh, projects that address climate um, and over, I would say over this, I've been there five years, so over three or four years, we've gotten to the place where we recognize that we want to address things like drought and runoff and, and adding back organic matter and carbon sequestration. We're working with um, our, the ecosystem services market consortia and helping to identify research that could support a carbon market, for example, that could end up with additional revenue streams or at least carbon credits back to farmers and ranchers. So projects like that, that are addressing these system shocks that we can't control, or sometimes it feels like we can't even predict them. Um, and, and projects that support that, projects that 
uh, provide are providing more practical hands-on guidance for folks that want to manage their soil health more effectively. So something in grazing land or pasture land. And then the last project around the carbon credits is really interesting to me because this is just a space where figuring out what research could support a market like that. Like what are the things we need to understand? We need to understand how you can measure how much carbon you actually have in your soil. How, what kind of recommendations could we give to help folks build that carbon in their soil? How long does it stay? How do you record it? How do you measure it? These are all really interesting research problems that are being addressed through um, that particular partnership with the Ecosystem Services Market Consortium. So I think those three projects, though, if you ask me in an hour, I'll be excited about four more projects because I, I, I love everything to fund. So, but those are the ones that I think through this conversation have kind of maybe stuck out initially. Um, and in, in that they are those more complex, unwieldy projects that I know if it works, we can have a lot of impact, positive impact. And that's what we hope to do. Yeah, and I think the thing that's, that's the beauty of what you said, Lakeisha, is, um, and, and I think this is the game changer of FAR, right? And the way, and, and talk about audacious, right? I mean, this is, you articulate it, right? Of from on the ground of understanding, verifying, quantifying soil health and all these measurements and how they flow into, you know, a marketplace, right? And you're looking at multiple big projects and you're sort of tying big projects to next big projects mm -hmm. and actually coming up with solutions where not one entity of and most of all of these projects are collaborations and a lot of partners, mm -hmm. but you're, but you're even, you know, when you start kind of adding, you know, project to project, it's, it's bringing in, I mean, y'all, you guys are just the connect connective um, tissue to all of it. And I, I'm excited about that. I appreciate you saying that because that is definitely one of the goals I had with my portfolio specifically because I was like, I always think about it like this, where I always say, I don't want to recreate a wheel. What I want to do is pull a number of wheels that already exist together and make a, a vehicle, right? I don't need another wheel. I need us to be able to work together to get farther faster. And so those are the things that I get so excited about is when I do work with like one project and I say, oh my gosh, you're handling this problem that my other project is having. Why don't you work together? And then, and then there's another project that may have another missing piece. And so it's this, it's this kind of quilting together of projects. And so then, but what happens when you do that is they learn from each other their networks grow, our networks grow, and then and you create this, this unit of people that are all excited and passionate about really having practical, usable science. Chad said it that one time, I'll credit you. But, <laughs> but, but it is, that's the part that's so exciting to me is looking for ways to connect and to and connect with purpose, right? Connect so that you can get to the answer faster and, and, and together, right? So that that is, I appreciate that you said that because I feel like 
that's something I work hard to try to do. I don't always, as you say, you don't always make the mark, but you're trying your best. And so I think there are spaces where I've been so humbled by how willing people are to work together and spaces where sometimes it, it can be quite, it's, it's work, it's business, it's science. Sometimes those spaces aren't always as collaborative, but I've been so humbled and in the soil health space specifically around how much people do want to share and do want to work together. That's, that's been the best part about this. It's just the community of people that are so committed to making things better for producers and finding those people and then and banding together and, and increasing our ability by working together. Yeah, there's no doubt, right? And I think it's having that attitude that we're in the relationship in the people business, right? First off, and yeah. it's that connectivity of, of people um, and a community. And we're just basically building a community around this usable science, right? And uh, finding solutions. So, you know, I appreciate um, everything you have done and our friendship and and the years of spending together. And I know uh, the challenges that both of us will work on together to try to find these solutions. And I just wanted to give you one last chance of, you know, any other final thoughts to, to wrap up this conversation? Um, I think the only thought to wrap up this conversation is just that if for whatever reason your listeners didn't think that, you know, folks that work in science are getting it or listening or trying to listen, that there are groups of us that really are committed to understanding what your challenges are and committed to helping support the creation of that legacy and the creation of like supporting all the amazing work that producers do for us and I know sometimes it probably feels like a thankless job um, especially now because sometimes you know agriculture gets the villain the villain hat but but at least at far and none of the partnerships we have do we ever see it that way and that there are people that are doing their best to support in any way that will be the most useful. And I think that that might be the last thing I'd say. Well, thank you again, Dr. Odom and, and uh, keep, keep fighting the fight. And we uh, appreciate everything you do for us. And uh, you're definitely uh, not forgotten on, on the work that you and FAR do for us. And we truly, truly appreciate it again. So wanted to thank the listeners uh, for joining uh, Lakeisha and I today. And just as a reminder to be sure to sub sub subscribe to our podcast so you don't miss any episodes and rate and review, review us. This really helps us find our content. So again, uh, thanks. Thanks everyone. And, and keep Texas big, wide and open. Beyond the Fence Line is brought to you by the Texas Agricultural Land Trust, dedicated to conserving the Texas heritage of agricultural lands, wildlife habitats, and natural resources. Find out more at txaglandtrust.org.